We are in Matthew's Gospel. We have reached the beginning of chapter 5. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We are entering a section of Scripture known as the Beatitudes. That's Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. So these are... uh, in my mind, some of the highest and holiest grounds in all of Scripture to hear these things fall from Jesus' lips. And so we will begin listening this morning. In fact, if you want to take a moment and just kind of flip through the next couple of chapters, if you happen to have a red-letter Bible, you'll see that these three chapters are all red. So it's rare that you get a section of Scripture where it's just like all red, for three chapters, and so we are really blessed to um, have the words of Jesus in this uh, way this morning. So let's uh, pray, and let's jump into the Bible, okay? Lord, as we read your word, would you minister to us? Would you teach us? Would you guide us? Would you lead us? May your word run swiftly among us this morning. May our hearts be open. May our hearts be fertile soil for your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, reading down to verse 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before me excuse me, who were before you. So it's interesting that as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we need to remember something here, that Jesus is God incarnate. And that as we hear these words, in fact, in any place in your Bible, again, if you happen to have a red letter edition, and you see those red letters, we are hearing the voice of God. I want to impress that upon you because so often I'll hear people say, you know, I've, I've, I've been seeking the Lord and I'm just not hearing his voice. Well, let me encourage you with something. Turn to the Gospels, find some red and hear his voice and let him speak to you. You may be looking for a particular answer for a particular word on a, on a situation or something. Hey, look, the Lord can speak, right? And as we read his word so often, he does speak. He speaks so clearly. He provides guidance. He provides direction. Now, prior to this moment, as we just read that Jesus 
went up on a mountain and, and sat down. And the, the idea here is, is that he went up on the side of a hill of a mountain and that the people were sort of down below him, maybe standing or sitting. And that was so that both he could speak and that they could hear and that they could see him while he spoke. Now, prior to this occurrence, the last time anybody heard God's voice speak from a mountain was when? When God gave the Ten Commandments. So that was the last time God spoke from a mountain. This is the next time. So this is significant to us because Jesus, as he saw the multitudes coming to him, and we know that so often the Gospels tell us that when Jesus saw the multitudes of people coming to him, coming to hear him, coming to listen, Jesus had compassion on them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And he saw them as sheep without a shepherd because the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, weren't meeting their needs. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, weren't bringing the word of God to the people. In fact, they had made the word of God inaccessible to the people. They had laid heavy burdens upon the people. And so Jesus now, assuming the position of a rabbi, sitting down, and this is what rabbis did, sitting down so that uh, when he taught, it was really a position of respect. You know, today in our assemblies, uh, for the most part, people stand up when they preach or teach God's word. But in the Jewish synagogue, the rabbi would sit to teach. And so Jesus here, assuming that position, the position of a rabbi, uh, seated himself, and the disciples were there to listen. When God gave the law previously, he gave it to Moses. Moses came down and gave the law to the people. And it was a very terrifying experience as they saw the, the, the cloud up on the mountain and they saw the lightning and heard the thunder and they heard the booming voice of God speaking. And Moses comes down with the, the tablets of stone. Now we have this picture of God incarnate, of the God-man, Jesus himself, sitting down among the people and teaching them, and making the Word of God accessible to them. And I want you to remember every time you open your Bible and you see those red letters, that this is God making Himself accessible to you and to me. He's condescending to us to make Himself known, to reveal Himself to us. The people up to this point only knew the standard of righteousness that the scribes and the Pharisees had laid down, but... Jesus was about to give them something so new and so different. Matthew's gospel records five discourses or five long speeches or long sermons, if you will, that Jesus gave. This is the first of those five. And by the way, the Beatitudes, as we call them, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, are the longest of those five discourses. So let's Let's jump into it where it says, Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as no doubt you have, if you know the Lord, you've probably read these at some point in time. Perhaps you've even heard them mentioned. You know, people take things that Jesus said and they sadly often take them out of context. And they just quote them randomly and without any understanding of what he was saying or the reason why he was saying it. So we want to take a moment this morning and slow down and think about these things that Jesus was saying. In these things called the, the Beatitudes, the word Beatitudes 
is a Latin word that means blessings. So the Beatitudes are the blessings. And isn't it interesting that the first time God spoke to the people in the form of the Ten Commandments, they were, thou shalt, or thou shalt not. And this time as God is speaking, he's speaking blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed means to be supremely blessed. The word blessed means to be well off. It means to possess the favor of God and to be marked by the fullness of God. The word blessed can also be translated happy, and some have said that perhaps uh, this should be translated, oh, how happy. Uh, You could do that, but I think it's better to understand it in the sense of God is turning the world upside down. In fact, these things that he's speaking to us about are things that we as human beings probably do not traditionally think of being a blessed situation. But yet, this is God's method. This is God's way. For example, we'll get to it later when, you know, in the book of James, when when the Lord says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials of various kinds. That's an upside down kind of a thing for us, isn't it? We don't often think of trials and and testings as being joyous. Yet the Lord wants us to understand that he's doing something in those moments in our lives. And as we just finished a study in the book of Genesis, we have to look no further than the life of Joseph to understand how God can take things that are terrible, that happen in our lives, and he can turn them around and use them for his good. God can take those things that are hard, that are disappointments in our lives, and use them in our life for good. So blessed, supremely blessed, well off, possessing the favor of God, marked by the fullness of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, who or what is the poor in spirit? This is those people who consciously depend on God and not on themselves. In other words, they are poor inwardly having no ability to please in themselves to please God. It would be easy in our, in our 21st century mind to read the idea of poor in spirit as being those who are literally poor on the street corners or destitute. And it is interesting that the word Jesus chose for the word poor does mean to be destitute. It is the poorest of the poor. But he's not talking about financial. He's not talking about material. He says poor in spirit. And so he's talking about humility. He's talking about understanding ourselves in the light of who we are before God. In fact, these first three of the seven Beatitudes contained here are inward. They talk about the soul, the heart of the person. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humility, according to one person, is the very first letter in the alphabet of Christianity. We must begin low if we would build high. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me share with you a few scriptures that illustrate this point. And there are many. It's almost impossible to limit the number of scriptures that talk about this issue. In Psalm 34, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. 
You see, our brokenness can bring us to the point of humility, which is what God wants. You see, pride is the root of sin. Pride is the exaltation of ourselves. Pride is thinking, pride is thinking, I've got it under control. I got this, God. I'm somebody, I'm a gift to others. I'm rising to the top of my field because I'm so good at what I do. Listen, we can, we can progress and advance and all of that, but the scriptures are also abundantly clear. It's, an, it's a sermon for another day that everything we have comes from the Lord. Everything is a blessing from God. Our mind, our ability to think. Listen, if you're an incredibly intelligent human being, praise God for that. God gave you your intellect. If you have a skill or a gift that you can use in helping others or in serving your employer, God gave you that skill. God gave you that gift. You have an, if you have an ability to make money, God gave you that ability. Everything we have comes from the hand of God. And so the right and the proper thing for us is to be humble before God, to realize that God is in charge, God is in control. He is God and I am not. And my sin separates me from God. And the first and the best thing I can do is to acknowledge who I am before the Lord. You know, they say when you go to addiction meetings such as AA, that the first step is to admit that you're an alcoholic or admit that you're an addict. And that's the way it is for us as we come to Christ, isn't it? The first thing we have to do is admit we are a sinner, to admit that we need the Lord. In other words, we have to admit that we're poor in spirit. Psalm 51, David wrote after he had sinned with Bathsheba and after his sin had been made known. He said in Psalm 51:17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Psalm, excuse me, Isaiah 57, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Psalm 66, verse 2 says that God will look on him who is poor and of a contrite heart and who trembles at my word. You see, that's humility. Isaiah 42, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. This is how God looks at the person who is truly humble. 2 Samuel 22, you will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. You see, God hates pride. Listen to Psalm 10. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble and you will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear them. Psalm 18, for you will save the humble people. Psalm 25, the humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. You see, so often the reason we don't understand or glean things from the, the word of God is because of our pride. And it says that the humble person is the person who can hear and receive from the Lord. You see, it's the humble person who can receive correction. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of us enjoy receiving correction? 
very few of us, almost none of us, right? We don't enjoy receiving correction, but the humble person does receive correction from the Lord. Proverbs 29, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. Wow. Proverbs 11, when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. You see, the humble person becomes wise through their humility. Again, so many. Um, I'll give you a couple more. I, Zephaniah chapter 3, I will leave in your midst a meek and a humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. You see, it's humility that enables us to come and to trust. The poor in spirit are those who realize they need God. It's the poor in spirit, it's the humble person who comes and kneels before God and says, God, I need you. Jesus told one day of the story of two men in the temple courtyard and uh, the one man came in who was a, a wealthy man and he came in and you know looked around and said oh you know I'm so thankful Lord as he prayed his prayer for everybody to hear I'm so thankful Lord I'm not like these people then the next man came along and he stood over in the corner out of the way and he he just stood over there and he beat his breast and he said God be merciful to me a sinner and Jesus said fellows you see that that guy He's poor in spirit. He's the humble man. The New Testament, James says, God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, similar thing. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So what does this verse say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the truly humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, if you want to be blessed, and it's a good time to stop and ask the question, right? Because we have in our minds probably this idea, this paradigm of what does it mean to be a blessed person? So often we think that someone is blessed as someone who has it all, right? They have the beautiful husband, the beautiful wife. They have the, the nice car, they have the beautiful home. They make lots of money. We look at that person. We say, that person's blessed. No, no, no. Not in God's economy. The blessed person is the person who's humble before God. The blessed person is the person who knows God. And humility is the gateway to knowing who God is. It's the gateway to relationship with God. So the first one, the first beatitude, the first blessing the first filling of God in our lives is being poor in spirit, realizing our humility before God and our need. Verse 4, blessed, supremely blessed, well off, you possess the favor of God. You're marked by the fullness of God if you are mourning. Wow, what is this talking about? Is this talking about you know, being in mourning for someone who's passed away? What is it talking about? Certainly that is mourning. But the mourning that the Bible talks about is those who recognize their deep needs and they present them to God. There's this beautiful verse, we just have been studying this in the men's study on Monday nights, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, as Paul has the unpleasant task of bringing before the Corinthian church how they uh, needed to be repenting over things going on in their midst, 
there was a man in their assembly who was sleeping, having sexual relations with his mother-in-law. And in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul, as he's recounting this issue to them, saying, listen, man, this isn't even named among the, the heathen, not even among the Gentiles. And he said, you have not even mourned for your sin. Now, later in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul comes back to this after having dealt with this via a distance for quite a while. He now comes back to this in 2 Corinthians 7 because Titus had come back from Corinth and brought a good report to Paul finally. And he says, listen, the dude repented. He turned from his sin. The church took the word that you wrote to them in that letter and they took it seriously. And it says there in 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow brings repentance. And he says, I'm so glad, I'm so happy that you have finally turned. And he says, oh man, what a blessing. See, this issue of mourning that he's talking about here in uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, he's talking about mourning for our sin. You see, when we come to God in humility, you see, this is almost like steps to coming to know the Lord, right? We come to the Lord in humility. We humble ourselves before him. We admit our need. Now, as we come to God, now we recognize our sin and we come and we confess our sin. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you. I hope it has. Uh, it certainly has happened to me where you mourn over your sin, where your sin becomes evident to you. Some way that you have had a, an attitude uh, toward God or toward other people or maybe a way that you've been acting, maybe a way that you've been treating other people, perhaps harshly or meanly, perhaps by snapping at them. Listen, I've seen, I've witnessed in my own life one person snapping at another, uh, showing a great anger toward them. Now, for an unbeliever, okay, that's normal. But for believers, this is not normal. And I've heard people, I've heard believers justify their anger and the, the harsh way in which they've treated another fellow believer by saying, you made me angry. Listen, our anger, our harshness is a response. It, it, it's something we choose to do. It's the way we choose to respond. When we study the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we talked about the fact that we can uh, react in the flesh or we can respond in the Spirit. You see, as a believer, I never have justification to treat another believer, let alone another human being, in a harsh, mean, or condescending way uh, because I have whatever the justification is in my mind. You see, no, no, it's, it's my heart. It's my sin that's causing me to respond that way. It's, it's my own wicked heart. And Paul, excuse me, Jesus here saying, as Paul reinforced, the issue of mourning. Those who mourn recognize their deep need and they present them to the Lord. They come before Jesus. You see, God is the only one who is able to assist. You see, blessed, happy are you when you come to the place that you realize humility. Blessed are you when you come to the place that you begin to mourn over your sin. Now, mourning over our sin isn't a place we need to live or camp. It's a place, it's a realization that we come to. And when we come to that realization before God and we repent, and we say, God, forgive me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Once we've come to that place that we have begun to mourn over our sin, we realize from the grace of God that, that God has forgiven us. And that, uh, although not true at this point because Jesus hadn't yet gone to the cross, but the blood of Christ cleanses me from all sin. 
I've been forgiven. Whom the Son has set free, he or she is free indeed. Blessed are they, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Interesting, the word comforted, comforted used here is the same word used of the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus said in the upper room, he says, I've got to depart because if I don't depart, I won't be able to send the comforter to you. The comforter, the paraclete in Greek, the one called alongside to help. Have you ever been doing something on your own, just struggling? And somebody shows up, maybe a friend, and all of a sudden they just come and they put their shoulder to the plow with you. And the two make the job so much easier than the one. For they shall be comforted, meaning the comfort that God brings. And I believe he's referring to here in somewhat of a veiled way, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who come to the place in their lives where they've understood and dealt properly with their sin. Now, the issue with our sin so often is that when we get caught, we become sorry. But isn't it much better when we realize our sin, when we acknowledge it before God on our own? Isn't it better when you can just realize your sin and and repent as opposed to having somebody else point it out? Again, how many of us like receiving correction? How many of us like having our sin pointed out? Either way, our response to our sin should be that of mourning, that of being grieved over our sin. Well, as we continue on, first two were internal. This one, number, verse 5, number 3. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, when we think of the word meek or meekness, we often think of someone who is kind of what we might term, this is not a term we use today, but hopefully you'll know what I mean when I use the term milk toast. Someone who's just weak, and they condescend to everything, and they just acquiesce to everything. They have no drive, no ambition, and people just run over them. They become a doormat. That's what we think of meek. We think of a person who's a doormat. No, 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 no. The biblical word for meek literally means strength under control. You see, a meek person is a gentle person, and a gentle person is a person who has great strength, but it's that strength that's under control. Blessed are the meek, And so another way you could think of this idea of being meek is a person who has self-control. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, blessed are those who have great self-control, for they shall inherit the earth. Interesting, when we think of a gentle person, so often we don't think of strength, do we? We just think of somebody who's being nice. That may be true, but in God's economy, the meek person is the truly strong person. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. You see, gentleness is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Self-control is a fruit of of the Holy Spirit. And so this gentleness, this meekness, is something that God wants to do within us. So poor in spirit, mourning, meekness or gentleness, strength under control, these are internal things. 
And as Jesus is standing there, or rather sitting there in front of these people saying these things, these are things that they've never heard before. Even though the Bible teaches them, even that most of what I quoted to you earlier was from the Old Testament, from the Psalms and the Proverbs and Samuel and other places where it talks about, um, you know, the poor in spirit or humility. And as Jesus is saying these things to them, these things are revolutionary. These things are things they've never heard before. This is like honey dripping from the lips of Jesus as he speaks to these people. So as he comes to verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now he's talking about, so I've come to the Lord. I've realized my poverty of spirit. I've realized my humility. I've realized my need. I've realized my sin. I'm acknowledging my sin. I've realized my great need before God. And now I realize the gentleness of God as the Holy Spirit comes into my life. And the word of God takes root and begins to produce fruit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Listen, we can never progress in our Christian life and our walk with God without this hunger and thirst for righteousness. And let's not skip over the word righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Righteousness is rightness. Those things that are truly right in God's eyes and right according to God's word. You see, the person who is a true believer, who is truly walking with God, is a person who desires that rightness. You see, we don't rejoice in iniquity, we rejoice with the truth. And when we see something going on, on TV, on the street, in the news, that's not right according to God's word, we can't support it, we can't vote for it. We can't vote for someone, we shouldn't, in my opinion, who supports abortion. That's just one. But as we, we use our faith and we use the word of God to think about things, you see, we have to be in love with righteousness or rightness. Blessed are those, it says, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, we understand hunger and thirst. We understand the physical hunger and thirst, but... Just as he said, poor in spirit earlier, this, this is spiritual, a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst for righteousness. Those who have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness have a spiritual appetite. Now, we know in our human world that maybe dinner's coming up and we're a little hungry. And so sometimes we like to snack, but what do we do? We eat some junk food and then when dinner comes... It's like, uh, I'm not really that hungry. Well, it's because you snacked on junk food. And so the same thing happens in our spiritual appetites. You see, we should desire or hunger and thirst for the things of God. But when we don't have that hunger and that thirst for those things, often it's because we have spoiled our appetite for God by feasting on things that are not of the Lord. Let me share some scriptures with you that talk about this idea of a spiritual hunger or thirst. Psalm 17 sort of sums it up. It says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. So that's talking about on the day we go to be with the Lord. It says that, that's when I'll show, I shall be truly satisfied is when I awake in his likeness. 
Psalm 119, verses 2 and 3. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. You see, a hunger and a thirst for righteousness means that I seek God, that there's a desire, there is this pursuit of God, this desire to pursue him. First Chronicles 16, O oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name, a desire to call upon the name of the Lord. First Chronicles 16, 9, sing to him, sing psalms to him, talk of all his wondrous works. That's a desire to know God. It says later in that same passage, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face evermore. In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, speaking of King Asa's reforms, it says in 2 Chronicles 15, 11, and they offered to the Lord at that time 700 bulls and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought, and they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. You see, God had brought restoration to them. They had a series of very, very bad kings, but now King Asa comes in. He's a good king. He's doing things right according to God's word, according to God's law, and is reigniting this hunger and this thirst for righteousness in the people. And as they offered a sacrifice that day because of what God had done in their midst, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. In Job chapter 5, we know that Job was incredibly, immensely tested as God allowed Satan to touch him, even touch his body. Job lost everything. He lost all of his kids, all of his, all of his possessions. He lost everything, even his body. He became afflicted with disease. Job said in Job chapter 5 verse 8, But as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. You see, that's the heart of someone who hungers and thirsts after righteousness even in the midst of the lowest low of the bottom of the pit he was seeking after God Psalm 14 the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand to see if there are any who seek God Psalm 27 one thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. A little further along in Psalm 27, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I will seek a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. A little bit later in these same Beatitudes in chapter 6, he will say, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In Matthew 7, he will say, speaking of prayer, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. Perhaps one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible Certainly the greeting card industry has made a lot of money off of this. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 29, and here's what it says. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me 
with all your heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because it says, for they shall be filled. Or maybe your translation says a little more accurately, for they shall be satisfied. You see, that hunger and that thirst for righteousness, that pursuit of God, is what truly brings satisfaction to our lives. Now, I'm sure, if we're all honest, that we have sought after and pursued things or endeavors that we thought were going to satisfy us. But in the end, once we attained, once we achieved, once we acquired, there was still that emptiness. There was still that, you know, it didn't, didn't quite do it for me. It's interesting, uh, you know, Tom Brady, now playing in the Super Bowl, someone was interviewing him and, and, uh, recently, and they said, so which, which of your Super Bowl rings is the most uh, important to you? And he said, the next one. And that's the way so many people are, right? It's like we're never satisfied. There's never enough. But you see, with the Lord, there is. Those who seek the Lord, when we seek him with our whole hearts, he will meet us and he will bless us. You see, there's blessing in seeking the Lord. You know, don't buy into the world's idea. Don't buy into the devil's scheme of thinking that 10 minutes a day with the Lord is enough, number one, number two, and anything more than that is a waste of time. You know, anytime we are sitting before the Lord and we are praying or reading his word, that's never a waste of time. That's all good. That's all good time. That's all time where the Lord is ministering to, to us, where the Lord is speaking to us, where the Lord is pouring himself into us. You say, what about those parts of the Bible that I read that I don't even understand? Yes, even that. God wants us to seek him. Even Leviticus, even Numbers, yes. God has a blessing in there. Just keep going. Just keep reading. And here's what happens to you over time. Now, you know this if you have any field of specialty. If you can think back to the first day you started in that field, you knew nothing, right? But now today, as you look back over the years, your mind is like a spider web of information. You can see how it's all connected. This is what happens over the, the period of time that we get to know the Lord. And as we just daily open his word and we read, and whether you're using a plan or you're just reading as far as you can or with as much time as you have, over time, what happens is that spider web grows, it builds, and we begin to see how one thing's connected to another. We begin to see, hey man, the mercy of God was mentioned over here. It's mentioned over here now. Wow, Jesus said the same thing that Isaiah said. Wow, they must be talking about the same thing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? For they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well off, blessed, possessing the favor of God are those people who are merciful. This might be another one where we look at it sort of like the one with meekness. And we think of someone who's merciful. You see, mercy is the holding back of what we truly deserve. Right? We think of grace and mercy. Grace is where God gives us the things we, do, we don't deserve. He just blesses us. And mercy is where God withholds what we truly deserve. Now, if God is withholding something from us, namely judgment, namely punishment, that's his mercy. His grace is giving us what we don't deserve, which is blessing. His mercy is holding back that which we do deserve, 
which is justice and punishment and the consequences of our sin. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You see, to be a merciful person, I have to have first been a recipient of mercy. I have to have tasted of mercy. Where do I get mercy? I, cert- I don't get it from the world, right? How many, how many of you would say the world has taught you mercy? Right? No. Mercy comes from God. Someone has said, the merciful extend mercy to others, thus demonstrating God's mercy which has been extended to them. Another person said, mercy bestowed becomes mercy received, which becomes mercy given. You see, we can't give that which we don't have. And we need to understand that God has given us mercy in a powerful way. Sorry. I'm not sure I understand. Sorry. <laughs> Apparently I said something that caught her ear. Second Samuel, with the merciful you will show yourself merciful, and with a blameless man you will show yourself blameless. You see, God delights in showing mercy. God delights in us showing mercy to other people. Another way of thinking of mercy might be to substitute it with the word compassion. You see, when we so quickly want to rush to judge someone or to say, you know what that person deserves? Remember, when we point that finger, there's three pointing right back at ourselves, right? God wants us to understand that we need to be merciful because he's been merciful to us. James 2, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has been shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's James 2.13. James 3.17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. It's interesting how James 3.17 kind of captures almost everything we've talked about so far in this beginning list of the Beatitudes or the blessings. If you want mercy, then be a merciful person. Jesus will say a little bit later in the Gospels, as you dispense or as you meet out to other people, so it will be meted back to you, meaning how you treat other people, the mercy, the grace, the love that you show them, that'll come back to you in God's economy. So we've been seeing here this pattern. The first three are things that are internal, that are, that are with us before the Lord. Now we're into these blessings or these beatitudes that reply, or rather that speak of us and how we conduct ourselves with those around us. But you see, these beatitudes, these blessings, hopefully you can see, are attitudes. They're attitudes that we need to adopt, not just as a code of ethics, but as understanding that this is a work that God is doing in our lives from the inside out. And you see, when God begins that work on the inside, then he does a transformative work. You know, sometimes we throw around the word being transformed by the love and the grace and the mercy of God. To be transformed is to be changed, is to be metamorphosed. It's to be translated into something that we were not. 
He comes to verse 8 here, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, the pure in heart are those who are inwardly clean from their sin. It means we're not duplicitous. It means we don't say one thing and do another. It means we don't pretend to be one thing and act another way. You know, we're one way in public and a different way in private. The pure in heart are those who are pure, those who are holy, those who are righteous before God and before men. The pure in heart are those who are inwardly clean from sin through faith in God's provision and a continual acknowledging of their sinful condition. You see, everything we've talked about up to this point talks about this issue of being pure in heart. You see, pure in heart is not some state we achieve. We arrive there because we understand that God has blessed us with forgiveness. God has blessed us with Christ. In Psalm 51, again, David speaking after his sin with Bathsheba, he said, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. You see, God desires truth in the deepest part of our being. Paul wrote in Romans 7, verse 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, pure in heart. Psalm 51.10, again, Psalm where David is repenting from his sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Interesting that in Psalm 51 where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. That that word create is the word bara, which is the word used in Genesis 1 where where it talks about God created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Where God spoke something out of nothing. And here's the point. With my heart, with your heart, with any human heart, It has to be God speaking something out of nothing, right? Because there is nothing good within us. Paul said in Romans 7, in me that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. So this idea of blessed are the pure in heart, it's not because there's a few select people on the face of the earth who are truly pure in heart people and the rest of us aren't. No, no, we get there because God gives it to us. Because that's where this progression, this succession is leading us. We are pure in heart. And listen, it says, for they shall see God. Listen, if you want to see God, if you want to know God, if you want to walk with God, this is important. This is necessary. That in that the sequence here of poor in spirit and mourning for our sin and being meek and gentle, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being a merciful person because I've received mercy, now we come to being pure in heart because this is the work of God within my heart, within my life, within your life. Spurgeon said, purity of heart improves our spiritual vision. You see, before we're born again, before the Spirit of God comes in, before I repent of my sin, I don't know anything. I read the Bible, it makes no sense to me. Now the Spirit of God comes in, things begin to make sense. Why? Because my sin is being dealt with before God, according to God's terms. And then it says in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, a person who is a peacemaker is a person who is first at peace with God. Romans chapter 5 tells us what it's like to be at peace with God. You see, before I can be a person of peace, I need to be a person who's at peace with my Creator, with my Savior. I need to be at peace with Him before I can be at peace with anyone else. 
Peace is the absence of conflict. And the person who is supremely blessed, who is possessing the favor of God, is a person who has that peace first with God, and then who has the peace of God to be able to give that peace to other people. See, peacemakers show others how to have the inward peace of God and how to be instruments of peace in the world. Sometimes we think of this verse, blessed are the peacemakers, as blessed are the arbitrators, right? Someone who can go in the middle of a situation or a conflict and say, okay, I'm here to negotiate peace. No, no, no. Great. If you can do that, praise God. This is talking about those who are at peace with God and who can bring the peace of God to other people. You see, we're a peacemaker not by solving the problem that's causing people to have an argument, but by causing the problem of the soul, the problem where we are at enmity with God. And until a person comes to that place of the saving knowledge and grace of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they can't be at peace with God. The reason they're not at peace with anyone else is because they're not at peace with God. Being a peacemaker is the person who tells other people where they can find peace. With the Lord, it says, for they shall be called the sons of God. That's our identity. That's who we are. The sons of God are the people who are at peace with God, and the people who are at peace with God are the peacemakers. Now, Paul said later, I believe it's in Romans chapter 12, where he said, as far as it depends on you, seek to be at peace with all men. You see, if I am at peace with God on the vertical axis, meaning in my relationship with him, then I can be at peace with others. But if I don't have that peace of God and that peace with God, I can't share that peace with others. I can't be at peace with others. I think to look at someone who is named by the name of Christ, who calls themselves a believer, and look at that person and say, that's a contentious person, there's a problem. There's a problem who something's gone awry in their relationship with Christ. Because they're not at peace with God. Why? Because they can't be at peace with other people. Something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but something's wrong. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You see, this is about our character. This is who we are. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, if we desire all these things, if we desire to live in this way, if we desire to walk with God according to these seven blessings that we've covered, then we will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? Because we're we're citizens of another country. We're citizens of heaven. We're aliens and pilgrims here. The scriptures are replete with these kind of references saying that the people of God are, are here for another country. This is not our home. This is not where we put down our roots. Our roots are in heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now, interesting, in all of this, as we've been reading it, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And see all the words for, F-O-R? It might be better and more useful to help you understand that as the word because. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, that's our inheritance. 
Blessed are those who mourn because they shall or they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek because they shall inherit the earth. This is speaking of when God will give us, the children of God, rule and reign over the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful because they shall obtain mercy. I, I want mercy from God. Do you want justice and, and judgment from God or do you want mercy? I'm quite sure the answer is mercy, right? So be a merciful person. Blessed are the pure in heart because they shall see God. See, there's intent, there's purpose. You see, if we want to know God, if we want to walk with God, then these are all the things that are elements, right? But these things all build upon one another. And, and really, this could all be summed up to say, if you want to have a relationship with God, then this is the path. Blessed are the peacemakers because they shall be called sons of God. And because you're called sons of God, you will be persecuted. Because the world will look at that identity, they will look at who you are, and they will judge you and, and call you harsh names and say you're, you're a wimp and you're meek and you're gentle and all of these things. And you know, you've got to have gusto, you've got to go get it, you've got to go after it, all those things. But what they miss is that God brings the blessings into our lives. In fact, the idea of blessing really has little, if anything, to do with material or wealth. Blessing, hopefully you can see this here in this passage, blessing has to do with the very presence of God in our lives. To say I'm a blessed person means I know God. More importantly, he knows me. More importantly, my name's written in the book of life. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, verse 12, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, Jesus is telling us not to be surprised. Paul, Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial which is among you. Remember in uh, Acts chapter 4 and 5, Peter and John, you know, they were going up into the temple about the hour of prayer, and as they were going in, they uh, healed a man who was laying there by, by the gate. He was lame from birth. And as they did that, the people came rushing around and wanted to know what had happened and, you know, tried to sort of elevate them. And then they began to question them, and then they began to persecute them, and then they got beaten. And it says there, either in Acts 4 or 5, after they had been beaten and then they got back to the house where prayer was taking place and they were sore and they were, they were stinging. They said they counted themselves worthy to have suffered for the name of Christ. You see, that's blessing. Blessing in suffering for the name of Christ. And that's being suffered for the gospel, suffering for the gospel, right? It's suffering because you bear the name of Christ. Now, we can do things and bring it upon ourselves because we're unwise in the way we conduct ourselves. But by simply standing up like Pastor Mike and saying, no, no, the government can't tell the church not to close. You see, this ultimately isn't about a virus. I know many people think it is. It's not. It's about control. 
It's about the God of this age exercising his authority over the church. But see, he's not the Lord of the church. Jesus is. I'm not denying there's a pandemic and there's a virus, but that's no reason to close the church. And quite frankly, in my opinion, and I'm sorry if this offends some of you, it's no reason to stay away from church. Jesus is in control, not man. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you. Listen, in 1 Kings 19, Jezebel hunted down Elijah after he righteously judged the prophets of Baal, and she said, I'm going to kill you because of what you did. That's persecution. In 1 Kings 22, the king of Israel persecuted Micaiah the prophet because he never prophesied anything good about him. Why? Because he never did anything good. He was an evil king. In Jeremiah 26, the priests, the prophets, the people, and the princes all came against the prophet Jeremiah because he, they said, because he deserved to die and that he would surely die because he spoke the word of the Lord to them. He didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear, and they didn't like it. In Jeremiah 37, Jeremiah was thrown in prison simply for being a prophet and simply for being one who spoke God's word. In Jeremiah 38, again, Jeremiah was this time thrown into a dungeon. And if you go read that passage, it says that he was thrown into the mire and he sank down into the mire in the very bottom of that pit. Why? Because he was a prophet. Because he spoke the word of God. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not worship the king Nebuchadnezzar's statue, so they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Is any of this sounding familiar? Daniel 6, Daniel was thrown to the lions because he was praying to Jehovah God and an ordinance had been written by the king that says you shall not pray to anybody except who I say you can pray to. I think we're headed that direction. In Amos 7, the prophet Amos was persecuted. Why? For being a prophet of the Lord. And Jesus said, blessed are you. Rejoice, verse 12, and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Again, James 1, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let that endurance have its complete or perfect and maturing work that you may be lacking in nothing. You see, persecution is a necessary blessing that we need in our lives. We shouldn't look at persecution or any kind of pain and suffering that we experience as God's favor is not upon us. No, no, no. God's favor is upon us. All of these things tell us that we are blessed because of all these things that we've just read. In fact, as we wrap it up, what does the believer who loves God and follows him receive? What are the benefits of living a godly life? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're given the kingdom of heaven. And dare I say, we have kingdom authority because Jesus has given it to us. He says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me and I'm giving it to you. Didn't he say that at the, at the time where he was ascending into heaven, what we call the Great Commission? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God gives his children comfort and encouragement. In fact, he gives us the Holy Spirit. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God not only gives us provision for every need, but he's pointing us toward the future and reminding us that our hope is not in this earth. Our inheritance is not in this land. Our inheritance is in heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, satisfaction and even happiness comes from God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy comes from God to us, and I'm able to dispense mercy to others. I can be merciful because he's been merciful to me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The spiritual vision, purpose, and hope comes from a right relationship with God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You see, my identity is in Christ. I'm being conformed to his image. I'm an heir and a joint heir with Christ. The biblical and the spiritual entitlement to the things of God comes to me from God. Not because I name it and claim it, but because God says so. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, we're recipients of the kingdom of heaven for being persecuted, and we are recipients of the kingdom of heaven back to the first beatitude for being humble, for being poor in spirit. And wouldn't you say that the person who is mercilessly and relentlessly persecuted is going through a humbling experience? You see, the Lord loves us. The Lord wants us to know him. He wants to walk in the blessings that he has given to us. And the blessing of God is the blessing of himself. It's the blessing of his presence in our lives. Do you want to know him? Do you want to walk with him in this way? Do you want to be the kind of person who can look at pain and trial and difficulty and say, thank you, Lord, because I know you're doing something, Lord. You're up to something that I don't understand. Lord, yes, as far as the east is from the west, you've separated my sin from me, but you're also the same God who is causing all things to work together to the person who loves you and to the person who's who's called according to your purpose. God, we love you because you first loved us. Lord, thank you for your blessings. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for ministering to us. Thank you for speaking to us this morning. Thank you for these things called the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've just entered in, may we be open to all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.